All right, welcome back to Sloyd Cast. I'm Mark Angelini, and I'm joined by my host, Mike. Likes every picture on Instagram before I see it. <laughs> Hannah, 60K Sloyd. <laughs> I'm here. And we are pleased to announce that we're joined by Maddie Whitaker over in the UK. And can you tell us where, you're, where you live, Maddie, and um, just kind of give us maybe a rundown of uh, what your life is like? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I live in uh, the north of England, so I live uh, in a place called Durham, uh, which is quite close to a bigger city called Newcastle. So, okay. yeah, it's uh, it's old mining land. So 20, 30, 40 years ago, there were loads of mines around here. So woodland can be pretty scarce in some parts of the county, and then all mm. of a sudden, pretty pearly thick. And uh, we live near nearish to a a big city so that we can uh, we can sell stuff to the mm. city um, we bought uh, we bought a small holding 20 years ago mm-hmm. and one of the one of the stipulations was we had to be close to somewhere where we could uh, just sell vegetables and uh, and right. the likes we set up a a veg box scheme that kind of thing okay i am i am familiar uh, with the term small holding and veg box because i've watched a lot of river cottage <laughs> with Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, classic stuff. Yeah, I, absolutely. I brought myself brought myself up on that. That's, uh, That's awesome. wonderful stuff. So you live on a so I guess for our American listeners, um the way I understand it, small holding is basically like a small farm uh slash homestead. Is that kind of how that term is used over yeah. in England? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's uh, so we we've got 15 acres. Um, we've got a a one acre veg garden, and then I don't know six seven acres of pasture, mm-hmm. sheep and chickens, and sometimes pigs. Uh, right. And then uh, the rest of it's woodland, and it's uh, what's known as semi semi ancient woodland uh, in this country, which means it's been on the maps in the uh, county hall for at least 400 years. But uh, wow. it's probably been been there longer than that uh so yeah it's it's a really beautiful place it's uh the woodlands um old hazel coppice mixed with oak and ash and holly and mm. and then lots of alder which uh is great for making charcoal and uh, it used to be used in this country uh for uh for gunpowder back in the day so huh. wow <laughs> so yeah it's a, it's a good good patch of good patch of woodland that's amazing. Uh, work that and where I get most of my materials from. So. Okay. Um, was that so? The coppice you have on your property was that that's been contiguously managed for that long, four hundred years? No, I mean this country. I mean, this country has um, yeah the green woodworking and all the traditional craft. They they nearly died out really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. I suppose when I started, when did I start? Like ninety six, ninety seven. That's when I first uh, found out about green woodworking. I was gardening, and you know, you pick up an axe and chop some wood, and <laughs> and I met some other people. But uh, but yeah, back in those days, you know, there was Mike Abbott. He'd just written a book, uh, right. and there were a few old guys, mainly in woodlands, with bill hooks, coppicing willow and hazel. But they were the last of their kind, really, and it was uh, there were two books out at the time, Mike Abbott and uh, Ray Tabor, and uh, I got those and 
yeah, that was the beginning, really. Cool. So, so you, so yeah, you kind, of, you kind of started out farming, and then that through being connected to the land and working the land, that's what brought you into green woodworking. Well, first off, about that time when I got those books, there was um, I, I was living in a shack, uh, just uh, out in Northumberland. We're in Durham now, but a little way away from where we are. There were these shacks that were put alongside. Um, a farmer's field just after the Second World War so people could get out of the cities after they'd been bombed. So we lived in one of those shacks and that was a bit of an eye-opener in that uh, I'd been living in rented accommodation and you know how that steals your money. Yep. But these shacks, the the, uh, the rent was, I don't know, £60 a year and £5 for the water bill and that was it, you know. So hmm. That was totally freeing. Uh, and then I, I met a guy who just, set up um, a green woodworking course. But like I say, there was hardly anyone green woodworking. And this guy mm. had learned his green woodworking out of the Mike Abbott book, which had only been published a couple of years. So he didn't really know what was going on either. So huh. we went on his course. We went on his course and by week number two, he'd broken his leg and me and my, my wife now, she was, I'd just met her then, uh, we ended up teaching this course. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Crazy, yeah. crazy scene. Wow. How old were you at the time, Maddie? Yeah. Uh, 23. Wow. Yeah. And wow. I literally had been green woodworking for a couple of months. And <laughs> I just about... Uh, and it was crazy, man. We were just... We were we were felling trees. I was teaching people how to fell trees. You know, I felled a couple <laughs> in the woods to, to get firewood and that. But this was in the middle of Newcastle City wow. on a, on a council-run farm. We didn't have any safety gear. We just had bow, bow, bow saws. And, uh, yeah, we just felled them. And <laughs> the people, they were just normal folk come to learn about <laughs> Greenwood. It's crazy, you know? It's That's just, that awesome. Was, that was the scene up in the north of England. There was nobody doing it. It was amazing. That's wild. It was new territory. And this is, was in the middle of the 90s or late 90s? Uh, it was kind of late 90s, 97, yeah. So, wow. Yeah, 20 odd years ago. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's how it started, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was a pretty crazy introduction. Wow. So yeah, we taught, the rest of, we taught the rest of the course for the next six weeks and yeah, I think we did all right. You know. <laughs> what what kind of stuff were you guys teaching in the course? Was it uh, mainly spoon carving or just just general green woodworking stuff? Yeah, more more like uh, splitting and cleaving, making gate hurdles, and I think that you know, there was a bit of uh, there was a bit of pole lathe turning as well, which right. hmm. we'd had two weeks experience on. And my wife ended up teaching that. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. With two weeks experience. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So yeah. It was pretty good, and everyone was just learning and just out of the books. You know, we weren't paying much for the course. You know. Right. It was, it was just a beginner's taster, really. But huh. that was the beginning, and uh, yeah, that was a wild eye opener of the possibilities. Hmm. Just the way you can use green woodworking. You know, it's it's not about all about making spoons, is it? No, no. So uh, you can use it for making gates, and you can use it for making posts. You can use it for making your house. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was a great eye opener and a great starting, hmm. free of any kind of expectations. You know, it's just experiment with all the materials and the tools put in front of us. Yeah, it's great. How about love, you? How do you start? 
I love hearing that that you you've been at this long because you know when I got into Sloyd, the internet was you know I got into it basically through Facebook. Um, and mm. my experience is, you know, chatting with people about their spoons, and it's just amazing to hear you crash course literally in in this um, course where you <laughs> had to teach it. <laughs> that's just incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty good. So yeah, that's that's how I got yeah. into it was through the internet, um, which is you know ironic. I didn't even know there were books about it at the time. Um, I didn't know anyone mm. that even did any of this stuff, and I think Mike can speak as Mike. I mean, he he literally learned through me. So it's like I learned through the internet and then he saw me and next thing you know, uh, right. he got hooked. Yeah. And then the world of Instagram took over my life. Oh, uh, yeah. That's, it's such an amazing resource now. Though, oh, yeah? it is. It's incredible. It's incredible. Mm. Mm. So, just, so you know, Maddie, oh, go back ahead. then. Yeah, go on. I was just going to say, you mentioned pole laid turning and um, I just wanted to say that's how I came across your work was Sharif Adams, uh, this might have been three or four, maybe five years ago, he had written a post about a small bowl gathering that a bunch of you folks in England had. And um, and he was just talking about the different people that were there. And I saw a, a picture of your lathe, I think it was. And he was talking about yeah. your tool making. And I was like, man, I got to check this guy's workout. He really seems like you know <laughs> the real deal. <laughs> um, so that's how I came across your work. And I don't think... I don't think at the time you were on Instagram. I don't know how I kept up with you, but um, obviously I've been keeping yeah, up with you I since just, you got on Instagram. I just started Instagram. Yeah, just just begun. Yeah, I mean, for for us, we've lived off grid for well, I've been off grid now for twenty five years nearly. So mm. back in back in the beginning, it was just those two books. I didn't know anybody that was green woodworking apart from the guy who taught us, and then a couple of other people thirty forty miles away. You know, they they were into it kind of um, just out of hobby kind of thing, an mm -hmm. oldish bloke. Uh, he was making yurts and things like that. Um, mm. But, yeah, uh, there, there, was, there was nothing going on. So it was really difficult to kind of hook up with people and connect and, and find kind of um, a support group, you know, right. and even tools, you know. Oh, yeah. You, you can get tools with from all sorts of people now, you know, but back then I used to get a, a catalog through the post, like once every six months, I forget the name of the place, but uh, it was a lovely little catalog, but it had pit saws in, it had draw knives, uh, it had a few uh, more knives and things like that, but, you know, the selection of tools was minimal, and it was just going around flea markets, car boot sales, and uh, grabbing, you know, old old uh, chisels and things like that. So, mm. Yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, and that's how I got into forging then. Was, you know, you'd get an old chisel or an old draw knife and it was, it was knackered. You had to right. put it on the forge and, and sort it out. So yeah. that, was, that was the kind of beginning of that as well, just, just through need. So yeah, the yeah, Wild I... West, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly and I, and I feel like when I read that blog post I mentioned, yeah. that was kind of what Sharif had pointed to is that you know, Maddie's a tool maker and, and he's come up with these really cool hook tools for turning all kinds of different, um, you know, types of things on the pole lathe. So can you tell us about um, your journey as a tool maker? You started out with, you know, getting these old beat up tools and fixing them up. But how did that evolve as you got more into green woodworking? Did you kind of out of necessity or you just really liked tool making? What kind of pathway did, did that follow? 
Yeah, I suppose, yes, it's like, when when began? So, so did that course and then very quickly discovered uh, that green woodworking and blacksmithing especially was really good for connecting with kids because I was living in the West End of Newcastle and there were loads of kids just kicking about out of school, you know, making trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were difficult to reach. Uh, but if you gave them an axe, that, that kind of sorted them out and uh, <laughs> it focused them and brought them to you, you know, rather than them, you know, trying to make trouble in the sidelines. But, you know, right. come here, come and have a go at this. So began teaching pretty quickly, really, just to make contact with these kids because it was kind of an interest. And then blacksmithing, I got my first mobile forge, a hand-cranked thing that I found on a scrap heap. And you know, making charcoal and buying charcoal off local charcoal makers, and mm. that the kids just like moth to the flame, you know. Mm, yep. They can be the the worst behaved outside this little ring of of rope and sticks that we set up. As soon as they stepped in and the fire was on, that was it. They were they were totally there and mm. totally with it. Mm. That was the beginning of you know of why I was doing it and what it was for for me. And it wasn't for another 10 years, I suppose, that I really began making tools specifically for jobs. So it was just changing them and retempering chisels and things like that, you know? So. Interesting, interesting. Do you, um, do you still work with children at all with the forging? Yeah, I mean, this year has been difficult. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, not, not much work with kids this year, but yeah. Not so much. I used to work at a project for a while that uh, dealt with uh, kids that you know had left school uh, or kicked out of school uh, for behaviour problems or whatever, and kids with learning disabilities. Uh, but I gave that up a couple of years ago. So it's mainly around fairs and festivals now that I interact with with the kids. Uh, and you know, if we have a festival here, the the Northern Bowl Festival here. Right. Uh, uh, beginning of the fi- the season in April, so yeah, a couple of kids come along to that as well, but it's mainly uh, <laughs> obsessed bowl turners. So the kids, sure. Yeah, I think Mark and I. A little bit. I was going to say Mark and I have a plan, yeah. hopefully, to make it to one of those in the future. Oh yeah, yeah. I have a festival on your place. Well, we've done we've done some mini uh, gatherings here on the farm where Mark lives uh, amongst friends and. Uh, other people here in the area, um, but nothing, nothing big like the the bowl gatherings you guys have in the UK. Yeah, so yeah, that was where I met Sharif at the um, the Bodgers ball. Um, I, ha- I I didn't know anything. <laughs> I didn't even know there was such a thing as the Association of Folate Turners in this country <laughs> until until we got really good internet through our phones here, and hmm. suddenly the world opened up. You know. Uh, so I found out about the Association of Polate Turners and Green Woodworkers, and they run the Bodgers Ball once a year, and that's where I met Sharif. And that year, uh, he was thinking about setting up um, setting up the uh, the bowl gathering. So that mm. was the first year, probably five years ago now, maybe. Okay. Yeah. So 2000 cool. and yeah. uh, what years are now? 2015. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd been bowl turning in earnest for 
six, seven years prior to that, you know, just working it all out, jumping on the forge, making a new hook. How am I going to get into that shape? And oh, I was going to have to change that hook and redo it. And yeah, it was a yeah wonderful journey. You'll know yourself a bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We are very familiar. Thanks. So when you first started out turning, were you focusing mostly on bowls? Because now I think when I think of your name, <laughs> when I think of what I see on your Instagram, I see a lot of cups and your beautiful stacking mm -hmm. uh, lunch boxes. Um, so it seems like now you've kind mm -hmm. of evolved into more of the technical turning. Um, but did it, was yeah. it bowls that drew you to the pole lathe originally? I mean, for me, that's what it was, is, uh, especially the ale bowls that Jared Dahl was turning, um, several uh, years yeah. back. Yeah, Those were what really got me excited about pole lathe turning. Um, so what was it for you that really drew you in besides the process of making the tools and just the process of working the lathe? Yeah, I suppose it was bowls. I tried carving a few bowls, and I thought, bloody hell, that's really <laughs> hard work. <laughs> You're going to have to have a charge of 100 yeah, pounds for a bowl. Yeah, and I'd, I'd never really got along with the pole lathe, you know, like spindle-turning legs for chairs and dibbers and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, but then I saw a bowl lathe. I think it was probably Robin Wood on the internet, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought that looks really cool. I want to do that. So yeah, I bought a set of Ben Orford hooks, and then spent the next year alternatively uh, crying into my bowls, <laughs> and sweating really hard, just swearing a lot, and just not understanding what was going on because Man. there was no information. You know, there was Ben Orford videos. Yeah. Um, and then there was Robin Wood videos but they weren't tutorials they were just you know so stop stop the frame what tool are you using there oh, i quite, yeah. can't quite see it oh. yeah. so yeah it's quite frustrating the first year or so <laughs> yep i understand that yeah so you started with the bulls oh yeah it's it's incredible what information is out there and, and just the documentation and right the, mm. the classes now um that's how I learned was going mm. to a class at a North House Folk School in Minnesota. Um, oh, that sounds a, a wonderful place, North House Folk School. Mm -hmm. It's it's incredible. Like it is it is definitely worth the visit. I went when Robin came, and I guess it was 2015. He came oh. and um, did a class, and Jared was there as well. Um, and that was, you know, because I when I first started, I, I started with spoon carving, um, and that I mean, mm -hmm. when I when I, I I saw Robin Wood's videos of him turning, and that was what one, got me to want to carve spoons. So I always wanted to do yeah. the turning. And um, as soon as I saw that he was coming to the states, I just knew that I had to be there, just because I, I I saw. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember him talking about just like you're saying, it was so difficult when you know in the '90s. I think he even started in the '80s, late '80s, maybe early '90s. Um, he, he did, yeah. Um, yeah, just there's no information yeah. and, and you're reverse engineering it in your mind, basically. Um, so I yeah. knew I had known that. And so that's why I decided to wait till there was a course before I, but I still cried into yeah. bowls and, and all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, it doesn't make sense, does it? All those angles going on. Yeah. It's just, it's crazy. It's it really, really wild. But once you get it, it's like, you know. Da -da. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sweet, 
sweet moment. Yes. Yeah. I mean, sure. that's that's why the um that's why we set up the uh, that's the idea behind the bowl gathering and Northern Bowl was just to set up a place where people could come and they could learn and everyone would be you know because I suppose there was a mild frustration at you know everyone being miles away from each other there weren't many people doing it mm-hmm. and it was difficult to get information you know mm-hmm. so okay let's get together and let's just be totally free with the information give it out to anyone that asks and from there you know it's the same with spoons wasn't it as soon as that was the attitude it just exploded you know mm-hmm. so everyone's making spoons everyone's making bowls and it's a worldwide movement just yeah, it's, it's totally yeah. inspiring. Yeah. Just wonderful. So yeah. be- before I depart on the pole, do you carve any spoons? Or ha- I mean, I assume you have in the past, but is that something you actively do? I haven't. I don't think I've seen any photos of spoons you've carved. Yeah, I, I used to carve spoons a lot when I first started. Yeah, um, just you know to be able to eat. Sure. <laughs> um, but then, then I got into well, you know what it's like on a on a small holding. It's very easy to, uh, you know, I haven't been a craftsperson for a long time prior to starting on the on the bowl lathe. You know, mm-hmm. I've been building houses, we've been putting roads in, we've been fencing, we've mm-hmm. been nadida. You know, the list of jobs yourself, yep. huh? Absolutely. So, you know, craft was really just a way to help me live to help me get the jobs done, you know, hmm. split an ash log and make a gate out of it rather than going and spending a hundred quid on a gate. So that was what my green woodworking was, make some spoons, that kind of stuff. So, but 12 years ago, I made the active decision that, you know, we built most of our houses. <laughs> I say that hmm. not finished yet, but uh, so yeah, made an active decision to really concentrate a bit more. I got you. Uh, so um, yeah, uh, I used to carve spoons. I tried to carve a spoon the other day. I thought, yeah, it looks a good idea. I got <laughs> about a fifth of the way into it, and I just thought, nah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, so yeah, That's and awesome. then got on the bowl lathe and turned turned a mug, which is like you rightly noted, my real passion. So. Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen Maddie's mugs, definitely we'll put um, your Instagram in the show notes so people can see your work. Um, but yeah, I was when I first started following you, I was really struck by your specifically your end grain turning and just the the technical level that you're turning at is really inspiring to me. And I mean, you're making gorgeous work. What you're the, especially those lunch boxes are just they're just sublime with the leather work and uh, all of that. Um, can you tell us how you got from bowls, then all of a sudden you're, you know, making these beautiful, intricate end grain um, contraptions? <laughs> well, that's kind. Um, yeah, I suppose uh, I, I, I was going into the woods, like our woods here, and just going for the day, coppicing. That's my day in the woods. And I'd be taking some lunch, so I just didn't have to come back to the house and you know, you'd get diverted by paperwork or whatever. So I'd go into the woods with my lunch and my, my flask. And it was always in a Tupperware box, a plastic Tupperware box. We have these boxes called Tupperware. I don't know if you have Tupperware out there, but you'll have something we similar. We do, yeah. And, you know, I used to eat with my wooden spoon out of this plastic box, right. which used to piss me off. So, <laughs> so 
the answer was the supperware boxes, uh, which yeah, they're radially split. They're not they're not end grain. They're they're radially split out oh, okay. of big logs. Oh. So, so yeah, more more like a bowl than a, an end grain vessel. Uh, I gotcha. Which is nice because end grain end grain's hard work, isn't it? On uh, oh, on your tools, and your, your body. It's uh, a diff a different cut, huh? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I had to go with it so, recently, and it was um, just an awful idea. <laughs> it's quite, it's quite different, isn't it? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, a whole another level of skill you have to develop, you know, versus yeah, bowl turning. Yeah, it's uh, it's different, different skill set. It's a different way of turning. It's nothing like bowls, huh? Right. Yes, that's what I'm finding out fairly quickly. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I was turned on to the the mugs. I I turned a few mugs and made my first. Well, it was it was beer that got me onto the mugs. Really, I, okay. I wanted a wooden pint mug. So, so yeah, me and uh, Yoav, he was coming up here for a while. He had friends near to us, so he'd stop by and you know we'd sit on the lathes for a couple of days, <laughs> not really talking, just communicating in wood shavings. So, <laughs> so you know, that's where we learned to to do nests but also to do a bit of end grain stuff. So that, that was the beginning of them. And then Yoav managed to uh, to nab Jared when he came over and he was teaching in London. Mm-hmm. But then he nabbed him to come up to Hereford. So he did a course on end grain turning and uh, and uh, the lidded boxes. So, so mm. yeah, that was, that was when they really took off. Just, you know, having okay. someone that spent all those hours and then freely gives their information. So, yeah, big shout out to Jared, really, for being one of those people that shares knowledge freely uh, and that's what makes everyone come on in leaps and bounds you know mm-hmm. yep cool so that was kind of that's how you you had the software idea but then you had to acquire the skills to make it yeah supperware came because <laughs> i wanted to make an entry for the the bodgers ball they have these little craft competitions they have spoon yeah sanded and unsanded and all of these different categories and one of them is turned treen so i was i was eager to win win my 30 pounds one year to to get my diesel money <laughs> so supperware was was dreamed up because uh, of wanting to win that 30 pounds so yeah and a solution to not eating out of plastic boxes so that's how they came into that's being awesome. about yeah four or five years ago so that was that was your idea maddie you didn't you haven't seen that elsewhere. That was kind of something you founded. Uh, I'm sure. Well, you get you see them in India, don't you? All those tiffin boxes right. uh, uh, and things that. Yeah, so it's, I suppose it's it's loosely on that. But it was yeah, it kind of came out of lidded boxes. But the the lidded boxes they they leak because they've got this little hole in the rim. Right. Uh, so yeah, the, the supperware solved that by having a continuous rim with a lid and a, a leather washer it's you know it's quite complicated and if you're not in the mood for them you it, you almost want to pick up the plastic box again because you know, <laughs> <laughs> you've got your little leather seal to put in and your lid on top but yeah, yeah I, I love all that intricacy and messing about and ritual so mm. I, I love the ritual generally although this morning i was a little perplexed by which leather seal went there and here <laughs> yeah you yeah. make an interesting so, point yeah, though. The, the, you make an interesting point about, um, I guess, you know, 
I th- I, I've noticed, at least here in the States, people are just, a lot of people are drawn to the handmade things. Um, we have, you mm. know, Pinch- Pinterest is almost like now the kitschy version of handmade. Um, but, you know, I, right. I, I, I talk right. to different people and, and people that buy my work that come to different shows we do. They're really, um, mm. I don't know, when they see something handmade or they see you making it, especially to them, it's like, oh my goodness, like you can do that? Yeah. Like that, you're allowed to? Right. Um, right. And yeah. so I feel like sometimes, even though, you know, like you're saying, fussing about with the, yeah. the supperware, um, you know, might yeah. be a little bit confusing and it has a lot more complexity to it, but you're... Yeah connected to it and that process is all part of having that thing whereas you know the tupperware you know you got the right lid you click it on you go about your day and if it breaks you throw it away and buy a new one um so i I just think that's i just think that's an interesting point because i feel like that's what people are are yearning yearning for that because everything is throwaway Mm. or plastic pretty much yeah yeah I, i look at tupperware the plastic stuff almost like power tools you know there's this level I mean, I use power tools, I've got a chainsaw, but I always try and ignore the whispers of power tools. You know, <laughs> I walk past the workshop with a bow saw and the chainsaw will whisper, use me, use me, because it's easier, you know, <laughs> that, that ease. Yeah, um, the Tupperware is the same, you know, you're a bit bleary, you've got up early, it's, a, it's an early start, right, the Tupperware's there in the in the corner going, use me, it's so easy, you know. But there's this level of disconnect that happens because of it. And and that was why I wanted to teach kids with hand tools as well. It takes me back mm. to, to that point of earlier, you know. These kids, any kid, but the difficult kids, you could you could reach them and give them these very simple tools that enabled them to make something with their own energy, their own power and very simple materials. And mm. That sense of empowerment that people get out of being able to do that, that's the thing. The mm-hmm. ritual, the calming of the mind, and that sense of reenfranchising yourself. You know, you're not having to rely on the great god Makita or the great <laughs> god Still. You know, it's just an axe that you've found at the bottom of a drawer and a piece of wood. It's as simple as that. It's really empowering, I think. Yeah. Yes. I, I love that. Uh, yeah, I like that word that you use, Maddie, calming of the mind. I find that that's the only thing that helps me just de-stress and totally disconnect yeah. from the outside world and be in the moment and just present. Uh-huh. And that's, I've never done anything in my life that resembles that besides green woodworking. Yeah. 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 The act of making. Right. It's, uh, it's a powerful thing um, for people in general, really. Especially in this 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 world that moves so fast around us, huh? Trying mm. to find a calm center in the middle of it. Absolutely. It's yes. just, yeah. So, you know, you, you'll know yourselves. You have taught people spoon carving, huh? Yep. And, I, and, and, and as people, you're talking about working with kids, um, my wife and I have a, a garden in town here that we teach children. And um, I've seen the exact same thing. We have a lot of kids who come from poor homes or, you know, just have a lot of problems in their life. And, when they're able to put their hands in yeah. the soil and plant a seed and, and harvest something and eat it, you know, and it's not at a grocery store. They didn't have to go somewhere to get it. They can actually produce it. It's the same kind of thing. You just, mm. it's, it's like you're unlocking this door that had been locked. They didn't even know they had, and it just opens up this yeah. whole new world. 
Um, yes, it's a powerful thing to remind people of that space. You know, just people carving their first spoon. You say, right, okay, lunchtime. And they'll look up, and they've been in this world for a couple of hours, and, and they'll say, oh, man, that is the first time I've not thought about work for that long. Forever. So you know what I mean? Yeah. That, yeah. that space is finally made because, you know, they're connecting their brain to their hands. Mm. You know, those important things we have. They do mm. these things that can connect you deeply to the earth. And... That's, after all, <laughs> where we need to be connected. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. We had an opportunity, Mark and I, back in April to teach a spoon carving class to uh, a group of high school students. And um, Oh, yeah? Yeah, due to, the, obviously, to the pandemic, that, that class was canceled. That would have been our first opportunity to co-teaching. So hopefully when uh, uh, this all washes over, we'll go back to doing that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's so important in schools. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Especially now here in the States, we used to have um, what they called shop class, which is basically learning how to use table saws and drill presses and wood shop. Yeah. We yeah. called it shop class, yeah. but um, uh, now they don't yeah. even have that. And the fo I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but the focus is on science, math, uh, technology, and mm -hmm. uh, I forget the other. There's yeah. STEM is the acronym, but um yeah, it's 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 almost been wiped out of the whole, even art classes now in public schools are being marginalized because uh, they don't you know prepare yeah. kids to be doctors or lawyers so they think. Um, <laughs> yes. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah I agree, yeah. I agree with that. It's total madness. Yeah, yeah, it's the same here. We don't have shop class. We have design technology or whatever it's called now. But that <laughs> that used to. Be. And when I when I did it, we had a an old car in the corner that people took to bits. We had welding equipment. We yep. had lathes. We had. You know, everything and uh, you know, I walk into schools five, six, seven, eight years later, and you know the the forges are all taped off. You can't use them. You don't have any mm. safety buttons on, and they're, they've all been replaced by three D printers. Which, mm. yeah, okay, they're amazing things, but need to be connected to a factory that produces plastic for them, mm -hmm. and you know it's all computer driven. And yeah. You then turn up to the school with some polaids, and the teachers go, "Oh, you're not going to give little Billy that that axe, are you? He's <laughs> going to kill himself." And there's all these, all these negative vibes around, you know, hand tools, sharp things, you know, they're seen as weapons, and you know, all of that kind of stuff. That, yeah, it seriously needs to be debunked in people's lives. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could I couldn't agree more. Um, so. I love this kind of talk. I mean, this is what Mike and I spend a lot of time talking about when we get together. Um, so this is just kind of simpatico conversation for us. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about, because uh, for me, this is my slant, is that Sloyd to me is, and I did a little bit of research. I, I really want to interview some some Swedish folks and Scandinavian folks so I can learn kind of where the word, how the word came out of that culture. Um, but to me, yeah. It kind of, I think as Yogi uh, on Facebook years and years ago wrote something about how if you trace the word Sloyd in Swedish back, it goes back to a Viking word, which is like Oslog or something. Okay. Um, and that word literally meant the crafty farmer or the smart farmer. And so mm -hmm. basically Sloyd came out of agriculture or um, subsistence, you know, farming and, and all that agrarian agrarianism, really. Um, so for me, okay. that's what's, that's, what's really 
fueled the passion for me is not only the hand skills and the working the wood, which I really love, but just sort of how it, it's this ecosystem with, you know, you're living on the land, you're producing yeah. some things, you're working with the land, and then it's not even separate. It's, you know, like you're saying, I need a gate. So I have this ash tree here. I'm going to fell it and split it open and make a gate instead of going, mm-hmm. you know, spending two hours driving up the road and emptying my wallet to get this gate that's going to rust and, you know, I'll have to scrap it in yeah. 10 years. Um, so can yep. you tell us how your work, um, like, are you harvesting all the material from your own property? How does that work? Cause it seems like you are already engaged in this long-term thinking about the land and, and making the land a better place. How does that fit into your woodwork, um, in terms of, you know, woodland <clears throat> management and, uh, how you harvest your materials and how you steward that resource? Yeah. So most of the material for my, my cups and the, the supperware boxes, that comes from the woods uh, that we own. So they've been unworked before we got here for 60 years. You know, they were probably cut for pit props for the mining, uh, you know, just after the Second World War or during the Second World War for for the war effort then. But after that, you know, it all died. People Mm. didn't coppice anymore. You know, the uh, farming changed forestry changed, it was all right. machines and people were slowly and surely taken out of the equation. So we got here and we got to a woodland where, yeah, there were no fences and there were goats mm. and the people that owned the land, they were trying to sell it and people didn't want woodland back then. I remember talking <laughs> to one landowner saying, yeah, we'd like a bit of land with some woods. And the landowner said, woodland? What do you want woodland for? There's no money in woodland. <laughs> That was that was the the overriding kind of way of looking at woodland. Hmm. So you know, this bit of woodland that we have now, the people had cut into the woodland, chopped down all the trees hmm. as far as they'd got. Anyway, they hadn't managed to get deep into the woods, but from the edges, they'd started felling the trees and then sending the goats in to nibble off the regrowth hmm. and burning all the brush up against the mature oaks and ashes. You know, hmm. that was in order to make it look like pasture. So we came to that bit of land that was denuded of any human love, really. You know, it was just, it was looked at as a commodity. So our whole ethos of here was, you know, if we're gonna build houses, they're gonna be ecological houses. They're gonna respect the environment around and take the environment as close to their boundary as possible. And if we're going to work the woodland, we're not just working it for product. We're working it for woodpeckers, for the tree creepers, for all of the birds, the insects, you know. It's looking at it like that, um, which has been so important for our project. So when I go into the woods, it's, you know, it's a real big thing for me to chop down a tree. I mean, mm. we chop down loads every year, but as as they get bigger and bigger, it's a choice. And sometimes I'll walk around a tree for for years before I decide that it is going to come down. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's how I get my materials. Awesome. Mainly for the turn. I think, yeah. I think that's an important thing to elaborate on because here in the States, um, especially where we live, we live in a forestry, like in terms of an industry, we live in the heart yeah. of, of, you know, National just, up, just up the road, uh, a few miles is a, a big paper plant that makes cardboard. And so I literally every day see, yeah. 10, 12 trucks full of logs, full of wood chips, just going there to yeah. just feed that. 
one entity. So I think around here, what I've noticed, at least in the States, I think in the States at large, um, woods kind of like, eh, there's trees everywhere. What do you need to yeah. care about where your wood comes from? But I know in England, it's not the same. I know that, you know, you're on an island. There's only so well, much forest. Um, so I, I feel like here in the States, it's not as pronounced of a, you know, managing a woodland. Why would you do that? Just cut the, you know, most valuable trees out every 50 years and whatever. You know? So that's kind of the, that's the overriding mentality here. Is it, is it similar in, in England where you have a more scarce, you know, quote unquote, scarce resource of woodland or is it, um, is it changing? Have you noticed it changing since you've gotten into this? It's definitely changing. Uh, you know, Second World War, after then, the Forest Commission was set up and they they planted loads of softwood all over the place, <laughs> uh, which nobody really wants anymore. I mean, there's there's some good species in there, there's some larch, but mostly it was, you know, Sitka, spruce and that kind of stuff, which yeah. it's only really good for chip now. You know, people don't seem to be able to find much of a use for it. It's not... Yeah, so, you know, there's lots of that clear fell forestry mm-hmm. history in this country. And that was overplanted on top of these ancient woodlands. So when you clear fell it, nowadays they're, they're finding, you know, the remnants of the, the old oaks and the old beech and the old ash. And they're leaving those and beginning to plant up broad leaves. This is the, um, the National Forestry mm. Forestry Commission. They used to be called, they got some new name now. I don't, I can't remember it. But in amongst that, there's all of these tiny pockets. We have lots of small pockets, especially up north of woodland, you know, lots of them less than an acre, um, lots of them, you know, maybe five, six, seven acres, all dotted about all over the place, which are mainly ignored because mm. they're not they're not worth anything to anyone. You know, mm. the farmers, they're in a little bit of a valley where they can't farm so the woodland gets left there or it's a remnant from a bigger place it's it's not really utilized greatly it's beginning to happen again especially down south hmm. down south is a lot more a lot more um, forward thinking than up north it takes a lot longer for ideas to reach up north hmm, uh, interesting so it is changing it is getting better but there's a lot of there's a lot of just commodity looking at it as a commodity really right like, okay i'm gonna clear sell that area those logs are 14 foot those ones are 10 foot those ones are eight foot they've each got their market chip pallet and you know sawmill logs mm. and you don't have to know anything about them apart from they need to be that diameter that length and you send them on a lorry you know yeah. that's the kind of forestry that's been um yeah overarching everything but now the green woodworking, people buying small woodlands, yeah, it's beginning to change. It's beginning to get really seriously um, competitive in that hmm. you can eke out a living selling firewood, making charcoal, making bowls, crafts, courses. But, you know, you've kind of got to live on the land as well. And mm-hmm. the planning system here, <laughs> it's not really up for that. So <laughs> that's the fight as well, really. Yeah, I've heard a little Because you know that. yourself. Yeah, knowing yourself, like living on the land, it makes a difference, doesn't it? If you had to commute to your farm, it wouldn't work. Oof. It would, yeah, it'd be, it could be a deal breaker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really positive vibes. And 
Yeah, lots of broadleaf coming back, um, lots of planting, but still, I don't think you know the government really gets it. There's, hmm. You know, they keep saying we're going to plant millions of trees, but you know, there's nobody out there anymore that is able to plant trees at that rate anymore. You know, yeah. we've been de-skilled. Hmm. You know, it's all harvesters and people from Eastern Europe can plant trees at that rate. But, yeah. you know, we've just left the European Union and the government is talking about not letting those people in because they're not classed as skilled workers. They're not engineers. They're not nurses. They're, yeah, hmm. they're just tree planters. So it's kind of going forwards, but going backwards at the same time on national yeah. policy. It's, you know, it's a bit screwy. <laughs> it sounds sounds similar to uh, the situation here in the States. Yeah. And it's interesting right. that, that you are... It's interesting that that's kind of, it sounds so, it sounds almost like homogenous, yeah. honestly, in terms of the, the mentality, the overarching mentality, right. um, mm -hmm. you know, the lack of skills, kind of the commodification of everything, the commercialization of every single aspect of life. Um, so yeah. I, I really respect and, and am inspired by the fact that you have been doing this for decades now and you're on the land, you're committed to this overarching philosophy lifestyle um to me that's again like i really feel like that's that's why i wanted to make this podcast in the first place was i really want to share these stories because you know you can look at spoons all yeah. day on instagram or whatever bowls whatever it is green woodworking um and that's yeah. fun there's beautiful work out there but be, that's mm. almost like the surface layer and beyond that there's this whole world of um you know ideas philosophies these lifestyles, these skill sets. Mm. And I feel like that's kind of the meat. That's like the, the cream, you know, of, of this whole thing is that story and that experience that people really are striving for, yeah, want, for sure. want, want a piece of. We have a lot of friends. Mm. Um, we live close to a, a small city called Lynchburg. Um, about 150,000 mm -hmm. people live there. And there's actually, a, yep. there's kind of like, we see the same thing. There's a small segment of the population that's around our age in their thirties or, you know, mid thirties, early thirties that are buying yep. land, are living, you know, in a way that is allowing them to save money so they can invest in something long-term. They're not just spending all their money, you know, eating at restaurants and buying things they don't need. So yep. we do see that as well. Yep. There's this overarching culture that, you know, is Amazon prime and, Netflix and all that stuff. Um, but then there's sort of like us renegades on the, on the edge and, um, you know, we're learning how to yeah. you know, fix things, make things, so on and so forth. It's, it's becoming more mainstream, isn't it? It, it is. Um, especially for I, I remember, you know, when, when I, when I first got my little shack, which was, you know, a little wooden hut, a glorified shed, you know, <laughs> I was, I was proud as, punch about it you know just loved what it was going to give me this freedom and my mum and my dad dropped me off one time they brought me back up north from where i used to live and i, I took them there to introduce them to my new house and uh, <laughs> yeah i remember my mum she left in tears <laughs> she couldn't believe that anyone would want to do that to themselves mm. yeah but then 10 years 15 years later you know, on the telly, there's crafts all over the place. There's the bloke in this country, Ben Law. You may have heard of him. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, Ben Law. So, you know, he was on a program called Grand Design with his house, you know, the building right, of that. that. And as soon as that was on the telly, you know, suddenly everything changed. Hmm. Yeah, it was no longer looked on as this 
you know, back to the landers, going back in time, you know, getting rid of all the advances that we've made, you know, squandering all of that. It was no longer looked at as a negative thing. It suddenly became part of the mainstream again. Mm -hmm. And slowly but surely, you know, solar panels, wind power, you know, all of these natural building techniques, lime mortars, you know, all of that, you know, it comes, it can come for people from a simple spoon. I think Barn the Spoon, isn't it, that says uh, spoons are the gateway drug. And, yes. Uh, <laughs> spoons and bowls. <laughs> dead right, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then you go into bowls and then you start making houses. And yeah, you know, it is, it is amazing what, what has happened in the last 10 years, especially uh, mm. to society. I think it's beginning to be taken on, isn't it? Yes, beginning for to sure. become important to yep. people again. And mm -hmm. that is very, very inspiring for the future, I find. Uh, mm. And I hope that it's going to be enough in time. Mm. So we shall mm. see. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm happy you brought up Ben yeah. Law because. Um, he was probably the first person I came across actually through uh, River Cottage, actually. He, I, I think that. it was River Cottage. I forget, one of the Hugh Fernley's shows, um, he went to Ben Law's when Ben Law lived in a, a, a bender. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Um, which I don't think is an American term at all. It's, uh, you know, basically, what is it? Basically, um, no. saplings from a coppice bent over and you put a tarp over it. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, yeah, the old charcoal charcoal makers used to use them. Uh, yeah, gypsies used to use them. The Romany travellers. Um, yeah, all those kind of people. Quick, easy shelter that you can stay in for a few days and whip the tarp off and hmm. go away, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So. So that so was Ben Law was one of the first people that inspired you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and. <laughs> And it was it, it was just sort of like oh that's cool and then then it you know as time went on I learned more about Sloyd and so on but um, it is I just thought it was interesting you mentioned Ben Law and that his house build which I've seen that show um, which his house I mean yeah. his house is gorgeous how could that not inspire you it's beautiful it's not mm -hmm. I like that you point that out it's not like oh you're gonna go you know live in the Stone Age as people like to say um, no it's actually <laughs> it's yeah. better I would argue it's better. Yep. Um, and, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I live in a, I live in a straw bale house, and we have solar panels. And you know, people, when you say you live on the land and all of that, they they kind of have this vision that yeah, you probably live in a mud hut and it's really primitive. <laughs> but you know, we've got we've got two forty volt electrics and all of that jazz, and um, yeah, it's really quite civilized. Yeah, uh, it makes me sad sometimes. I miss the old yurt that we used to live in, but. Now, mm. you know, life moves on, doesn't it? And uh, I probably, I probably not, not brave enough to live in a year anymore. Gone a bit <laughs> soft as the years go by. But yeah. So, yeah, it, it, <laughs> it doesn't have age. to be, you know, going back to the Stone Age. You can, you can take from both, can't you? That's the mm. thing. Modern life has amazing things to give us, you know. But Absolutely. so has tradition. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Um. Mixing the two, mixing the two is a wild ride, eh? Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, trying to just kind of, at least here in the states, it's it is. You have to be very committed to wanting to live a different way because there's so many hooks that want to pull you in. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure it's similar there. Um, 
with all the different trappings of, you know, especially debt being probably the number one thing Mm -hmm. that sucks a lot of people away from their, what they want to be doing. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, it does take a concerted effort. Um, but I love that. I love that you brought up that the, uh, the spoon is the gateway drug because, you know, everyone uses a spoon <laughs> at some point in their week, right. at the very least, they're going to use a spoon for something. Right. Um, and what yeah. I've, you know, what I've seen, yeah. maybe, maybe this is true for you as well, Maddie. Um, people that have bought spoons for me, actually this winter, I saw mm-hmm. them, some folks, they bought a spoon for me, I don't know, two years ago. And yeah. they made a point to say, you know what, that spoon I bought from you, we love using it every day. We use it. And when we use it, we just think about how you made it and how, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. And I just thought that was, it's very sweet of them to say that, but I, beyond that, like how amazing this one thing every day they use it and whether they know it or not, they're connected to this whole process and it's, it's making them slow down and think about what they're doing. And I just think that's really Absolutely. cool. Oh yeah. oh yeah. I mean, I that feel is, the same way. It's awesome. Go ahead, man. Yeah. Go ahead. I was gonna say I feel the same way about every spoon I have in my house that I've that I've made or I've gotten mm. from someone else. It has a story attached yeah, to it, like, like, and you just think about that story, and that in itself just brings you joy. Like, oh, it came from this tree yeah. that I was given by this mm. friend, or whatever it is. You know, mm. I carved it last summer. Yeah. It's just, it's just so much different than just open up the drawer and grabbing a metal spoon, and which feels so clunky and heavy and <laughs> uncomfortable compared to a wooden spoon <laughs> and ever since i started eating with a wooden spoon i don't know why anybody would go back to a metal spoon <laughs> yeah it's it's like um it's like meeting people isn't it it is you, you have a memory of who made that spoon and you know like you were saying there mark it's uh you know there, there's that there's a, a bit of community that's built by people buying from a craftsperson and then living with that craftsperson's uh, wares, you know, every time they pick it up, yeah, they, they think of you. They think of that process that mm. happened, and you know, that, that's, that's a powerful bit of community building. Mm-hmm. You know, if you did that with your shoes, with your clothes, with mm. your everything. house, everything. with everything, you know, then you are, you are beginning to build community. It's no longer divorced. These things are not far away things that have suddenly landed in your lap they they have to be built a community has to be built so you know if you buy things from people you are building that community and that's that's a really powerful part of the whole craft movement for me Hmm. is that building of relationships uh yeah yeah it's a beautiful thing let's uh let's talk a little bit about tools while we while we have you (laughs) um so with your and i mean like i said earlier that was kind of what i knew when i saw you in this blog post mentioned um, i kind of knew you as the tool maker um can you tell us with doing the with doing the pole laid turning um how is how important has tool making been to you in your craft process being able to because i know for me there's no way I could be a pole laid turner if I didn't know how to make my own tools. I just, I can't see myself being committed to it long-term and having to rely on someone else to make this thing that I can't even describe to myself. You know, I couldn't even draw it. Um, No, indeed. And, and they're they're so kind of, yeah, I I sell a fair few tools and, you know, obviously some people don't have any access to a forge um, or, you know, even the ability to, 
hit metal in a yard without mm -hmm. annoying the neighbors you know so it's really sure. important that there are tool makers out there but yeah personally yeah i'm in the same camp uh, i could not um yeah make the things i make without being able to oh hang on this shape is a bit different uh, before for whatever reason and i'm gonna have to go and change that hook or gonna have to go and make another one um so yeah it's pretty important to the process and and also really enjoyable i just love jumping from the pole lathe to jumping to the forge and then coming back and testing it and just uh, it doesn't quite work so going back and tweaking it and that that process you know, I, I love processes i love full processes from beginning to end so being able to make your tools and then use them is you know it's part of a full process from chopping a tree down to to finished item the the only thing that i haven't done that i need to do is make the steel in the first mm. place you know mm. um, so yeah it's it's really important but then you know you get into tools and you begin to notice that your tool works very good on your lathe and then you take it over to whoever's lathe that you're visiting that time and their lathe is set up mainly the same you know it looks the same but the tool rest is just Definitely. half an inch lower from yours or you're standing and holding your arms slightly differently they the bit where the uh, tool rest rests on is slightly different angle and all of those they they play such a part in that yep. you know somebody's tools won't work on somebody else's lathe without mm. drastic mm -hmm. changing of the movement of your body so right. there's all of that interesting interplay as well isn't there yes that's yeah, very we, important we have a we have a very uh, visceral story of that so we mike and i built um, a portable pole lathe for an event that my wife and i organize here at our farm every fall um we're actually kind of building out this, we're calling it Sloyd Corner, and it's going to be, last year is kind of our second year adding to it. But at any rate, it's a section of this festival we do where people can come and observe traditional craft, and yeah. you know, we have some things for sale and so on. But we built this lathe so it could be mobile. We could take it there and take it you know, other places. And we spent a lot of time yeah. building this thing. I mean, and we went we went overboard on it, and um, we set it up. And, man, it was, I felt like I could not, I didn't even know how to use it when I got on it. It was like, what is wrong with me? But what I loved wrong it. With it? <laughs> and yeah, and Mike, it was no problem. Mike was just like, he didn't have to change anything. But I literally like, I've used it three different occasions now. And I just, I don't know. There's something about the height of the poppets or something about it. I just, I cannot cut it the same way as I can on my lathe. And my, you know, it's just, it's really fascinating how, again that other layer it's like it's so personalized it's so um yeah it's just so yeah. uh intimate the whole process yeah 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 um yeah i built myself a new light and then i don't use it anymore i went back to the old <laughs> one because it, it was horrible yeah. <laughs> i've got got a bit more used to it these days but yeah it was just the most atrocious thing i'd ever been on and there was nothing <laughs> wrong with it it was just it was just different it wasn't the same so you know if i'd given it a week i'm sure i would have settled into the new positions but mm -hmm. also you know if i didn't have a new lathe but i got a new set of tools from whoever it was aid or yoav or jared anyone that makes tools you know you take it to your lathe it's going to be different they're going to be different angles because yeah. they're made in different ways they're Absolutely. made for different lathes for different people it doesn't make any 
all bad. They're all just different, aren't they? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. They can all be used in the end. You just have to learn, <laughs> learn yeah. how they're used. So, so, yeah, being able to make your own tools to your own specifications and your own way of being, yeah, it's quite important, really, if you're going to make any mileage into into your chosen craft. Yeah, yeah I think, I think yeah. that's very important for somebody who's wanting to start off on the pole lathe. Is to understand yeah. how the hook uh, tools work before they make yeah. a purchase. Because I did that. <laughs> I built a lathe yeah. and then went ahead and bought some hook tools from Adrian Lloyd, and I got the centers from yeah. him, and they work great yeah. until yeah. I needed some more tools, and out of necessity, yeah. ended up buying a forge, and I started blacksmithing, and now it's just a whole yeah. other journey, which I just you know fell in love with and now my forge yeah, sits yeah. maybe three feet away from my lathe and anytime i want to make an mm-hmm. adjustment on the tool like you were saying i can just yeah. go back and forth and it's it's so nice to have yeah. so for anybody who wants yeah. to start off as a pole turner i think it's very important to understand the tools and how they work how they're forged and eventually i mean it's yeah. going to cost a lot of money if you're just going to keep buying tools over and over again so it's important for them to get into blacksmithing yeah. and making their hook tools yeah, but also, I mean, the the bloke, the old guy that Robin Wood talks about in his book, mm-hmm. The Last Bowler, or uh, yep, yep. well, his name escapes me, which is uh, shocking. Uh, Anyone Lay- remember? Laley? Laley, George Laley. George yeah. Laley. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, did, he didn't make his own tools, apparently. He got huh. a blacksmith down the way to, uh, huh. to, to make them. So, oh, that's interesting. Huh. So, yeah, it's not necessary, you know, and also uh, I moved through my uh, progression with this craft. You know, for a while I had like 20 different tools, you know, uh, but for end grain turning now, I, I just use one tool now, uh, hmm. a straight a tip down hmm. hook tool, you know, whereas before I've had cranked tip downs and hmm. tip up tools, yeah, and all of that stuff, but now. I'm just making a mug with one long shanked, uh, really curved head on the the hook. Yeah, tip tip down hook. And you find and that to work well, you know? Yeah, that's that's all I'm using now for the for the mugs. Wow. Yeah. Whereas before, I would have thought, no, 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 I've got to have a little one for the lip there. But it, it's just it's just finding a tool you like. Mm-hmm. And then learning how to use it to its maximum, really. So right. it can be you can have loads of tools, or you can have very few tools. And huh. Yeah, I definitely cycle between the two because it's nice to have lots of tools, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. Let's face it. Well, it's interesting <laughs> that you said that that you just use a a tip down, you know, tool because I've, you know, was recently watching uh, Zed Outdoors um, and the video that he did with Yoav doing end grain turning. Yeah. And I was just studying the video, you know, like second by second, trying to take screenshots of all the hooks that Yoav was showing off. Yeah, yeah. And I went to my forge and I'm like, okay, I got to make a, make a bent hooks and, you know, all this other stuff that he was showing. Yeah. And uh, when I got down yeah. to turning, I had no idea what I was doing. And I got so frustrated <laughs> <laughs> after, you know, yeah. having spent three hours on the forge and, you know, quenching and tempering and trying to get the right angle on the hook it just was not working yeah. so it's interesting yeah. that you said that you just use a regular for, for, tip down um tip down hook because i might now have to 
Try that. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of happened because I've been making some quite deep jugs, you know, like 10 inches, 12 inch deep, like jugs for right. beer, basically. It always comes down to beer, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I had some cranked hooks for those, and I found the deeper I got, the crank just kicked out my wrist as ah. deeper and deeper. Hmm. Uh, so instead of being you know, a bonus, which it can be, it, it suddenly became this thing that was getting in the way. So I took it to the forge, huh. and I just straightened this hook out. <laughs> so now it's just a really long, tip-down hook. But the, the tip on it is curved almost right over back onto itself. Oh, so, so like a scroll. You can use it. Yeah, you can use it, use it on its backside hmm. as it almost comes into the shank of the tool, and that's where you go down the core. But then mm -hmm. you can you can just move it across the cup to go on the outside wall because it's got a full scroll on it. So nice. it's kind of two tools in one, you know. Mm. And that was, I'd like to say that it was all planned, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was more, more accident and frustration than anything else. But, you know, that's the way it goes, isn't it? So yeah, so, yeah and since that point, that's the only tool I've been using, you know. Don't need anything else. So that's why, so cool. Yeah. Why fuss? And more of a technical question, Matty. Yeah. What kind of a bevel are you putting on on a hook like that? Uh, well, I've got several bevels, and those bevels have kind of come from continued sharpening. So generally, when I make them, they're between twenty-five and thirty. So if it's a roughing gouge, it'll be quite wide. Uh, roughing hook, it'll be quite wide, mm -hmm. and it'll be getting towards the thirty-degree bevel. Yeah. Okay. Just so. It, it's just beefing through because I hate axe work, so <laughs> I leave lots of lumps and bumps. So I need to have something that will beef through all those lumps and bumps. Uh, and then I'll have another hook for the finishing stuff, which will be closer to 20, well, it will be 25 degrees and perhaps even less, some of them. Some of the older hooks that have been sharpened and sharpened, they're getting wafer thin, yeah? Mm -hmm. so they're down to... 20-something degrees. Mm -hmm. but And they don't last very long. The edge lasts no time at all right um but if you're just doing that last finishing pass they're, they're the best so right. so yeah it just depends and are you finishing using or, uh, spring steel spring steel yeah so yeah i use a lot of um a lot of old car springs just i just mark mark 14 inches along the coil at 14 inch length with a bit of chalk and then chop them with an angle grinder so you get lots of kind of 14 inch horseshoe bits mm -hmm. and then straighten the middle in the forge right. and then straighten the two ends and you've got a roughly straight bar then right. <laughs> i did try and straighten I was such a fool at the beginning you know <laughs> trying to straighten the entire spring on the forge so you, and then you've got six foot of bar and think, oh, great, <laughs> yeah that's quite difficult oh, i'm gonna stop <laughs> yeah. it is, it's stupid yeah. I did that twice before I worked it out so, <laughs> honestly so, I'm not the cleverest of people sometimes mm -hmm. so, yeah. so now just cut them into 14 inch sections before you straighten them right right yeah the I did that the, day, you know? the other day and I was like oh this is much easier <laughs> <laughs> and are you yeah, also quenching um, meaning hardening um, yeah. in some sort of oil yeah. and then are you tempering in an oven or you're just uh, just doing, you know, just the regular temper, uh, drawing the temper, the, I mean? All on the forge, yeah. I mean, there's a little YouTube video, a pretty rubbishy YouTube video of, of what I do on 
and it's the only YouTube video I've got. Um, but it was to help out the students that come and into my forge. It's rather than give them a handout, go and watch that video. So yeah, yeah. Well, probably Matty Whitaker on YouTube. I don't Matty dot Whitaker on YouTube. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it's just um, yeah, quench in vegetable oil. Mm-hmm. I should get some proper quenching oil. Right. After talking to Nick Westerman at the uh, the bowl gathering, I should get some proper quenching oil. But vegetable oil seems to work just fine. Mm-hmm. So yeah, heat it up to Cherry red, just beyond, hold that temperature for a while, and then uh, quench in the, the veg oil. Right. And then it's it should, some of the uh, the scale will have flaked off, and you'll see a silveriness, you know, you've got it right then, and the file skates over the surface, you know, that feeling, it's uh, suddenly hard. And if you tap it on the anvil, it, it might just crack, like shatter with a, like a bit of glass. Mm-hmm. So that's when the, uh, the tempering comes in, isn't it? Right. And I just do that over the fire, Bring a bit of shine onto the uh, onto the edge, and then put the hook end two inches away from the heat source, and let the colours run slowly, slowly, slowly up uh-huh. to the top until you've got that gold all on the cutting edge, and a bit of spring colour, the blue spring colour, just as it goes into the bend of the hook, just for that extra resilience. So, yeah. So you're going yeah. almost to like a purple blue. Yeah, just before you get to the cutting edge, there's that that spring temper, right. yeah. the the higher temperature, and Got then it. the lower temperature is that that straw color just touching the the cutting edge. So you've got that hardness still in the cutting edge, but you've got that resilience uh, in the just behind the cutting edge, that springiness, right. just so the the thing doesn't snap off. You know? Right, uh, which Mark and I have done. That's the way I do. Repeatedly. Yeah, broken many hooks. Say what? We've broken many <laughs> hooks. Yeah. Yeah, it's e- easy to do, but I think if you get into tempering and just temper real slow, mm-hmm. and yeah, uh, it just makes all the difference because right. it's all about grain structure at the end of the day. You know, if, right. you, right. if you've kept kept that steel in the fire before you uh, harden it for a little while, you're you're refining that grain structure. It's getting smaller and smaller, tighter and tighter. Mm-hmm. And then you quench it. You've got this really fine grain structure, mm. just perfect. And then you can temper that back so that it's not glassy hard and right. not brittle as, as glass. Right. Just temper that back. Um, yeah, so, and you, if you can do that tempering nice and slowly as well and just slowly let the uh, steel change its structure. You don't want to be hurrying it along from one state to the other, you know, it just gets a bit stressed out. So right. nice and slow, all those processes, just take your time on them. You know, people have special tempering ovens, don't they? You get to, right. you have to uh, yeah. spend we call hours it a bigger going oven down here. the different temperature degrees. Yeah. Yeah, I just, yeah. I've, I've, I've tried tempering kind of a few times <laughs> in my uh, kitchen oven and it works fairly well. Yeah. Yeah, it works, but it's a universal temper then, isn't it? Everything's the same temper. Yes, that's so exactly, you, I think, the problem let, I run into. If you, heat, if you let the heat come from one point to the end, you get this this differentiation, this gradient of tempers, which right. I think is useful anyway. And you're doing but, this... You know, horses for courses. <laughs> Say what? More than, more than one way to do everything. That's the thing, isn't it? Oh, for sure, for sure. And you're doing this with a charcoal forge, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't use anything else but charcoal. Yeah. Hmm. 
Um, can you yeah. I, can you give us a sense of what your setup looks like? I know you you had a post recently on your Instagram not too long ago about your outdoor shop um, workspace. Mm. What is your what does that look like for both your turning and your um, blacksmithing? What's kind of what's the intricacy of it or simplicity of it? I think that'd be interesting to know. So the, the blacksmithing is pretty luxurious these days. Uh, <laughs> me and my son built a, a workshop. He wanted to build a quad bike. So I said I'd help him if I could have the forge in the back of the workshop. So I've got <laughs> an inside forge for the first time in 20-odd years, which oh, is wow. lovely, especially, especially December time. It uh, makes yeah. a difference. The anvil is not minus two and mm. uh, sucking all the heat out of your metal. Yeah. So that's a really nice setup. I've just got a, a hand-cranked uh, forge, although... Excitingly, I've just got this foot-powered forge made mm. by a, a company called Hayden Allball. So you press it with your foot just mm -hmm. once, twice, and this blower spins for about two and a half, three minutes. It's amazing. Mm, that's incredible. incredible. So I've just got one of those. I've been after one of those for 15 years when I fell in love with one at a festival. So I finally found one on eBay. And I've they're, they're, el they're electric? 300 miles. Okay. No, no, foot-powered. Just oh. Yeah, it's got this. It's got this spiral within this um, this pipe, and you press on the, the shank, and it it pulls this uh, these rods down the spiral and turns the blower mm. unit in the fan unit at the top of the spiral, and it all runs on ball bearings, so there's hardly any friction. It's just mm. the most beautiful mechanism, oh. gorgeous. So that's going in the shop soon. But at the moment, I've just got a hand cranked one. Um, yeah, which is fine, and I use that for workshops. It goes traveling with me when I go and teach at festivals and fairs and and gatherings. So that's that's the uh, blacksmithing shop. Okay. And uh, outside is uh, about, I don't know, 40 yards away, there's the turning place, which is just a tarpaulin hung between the trees in, in front of a, an old shed. And uh, that's really good this time of year. It gets a bit nippy, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> December, January time, and sometimes the wood is frozen and I can't turn. <laughs> uh, yeah, in two minds I love being outside turning I love hearing the, the birds and the wind and all of that mm -hmm. kind of stuff and smelling the smells of the, the honeysuckle or the mushrooms in the ground you know all of that connection yeah. but I'm getting on a bit these days 46 now and getting a bit softer uh, <laughs> so I'm kind of hankering after an inside space as well but trying to keep that outside space that's yeah. quite important. About about you, what's your setups? Um, I have a we have a it's like a, a just a stick framed garage, um, and the corner of it is where I have my. It's basically like our farm workshop, but it's also where I do my woodworking and store, you know, everything. And I have mm -hmm. my lathe lathe nice. in the corner there, and then we have on the farm here we have a community blacksmith shop down um, in a big building that we have here. Um, so that's where I do most of so my blacksmithing is, and that's a coal coal powered um, with a hand crank. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm on the other right. hand outside so completely. I have everything underneath, uh, you know, a back deck uh, at our house. Yeah, it's about maybe okay. 200 square feet, and both the lathe mm -hmm. and the forge are right next to each other, and. I don't have a pole for my lathe. I just use bungees, and they just hang off the rafters. Um, and yeah. then the forge, I have a very small uh, two-nozzle uh, propane forge. 
and um yep. i recently bought a new anvil which i had been saving for for like a year and a half mm -hmm. which is very exciting right. um because i've really yeah. gotten into blacksmithing I'm, I'm just not making the hook hook tools i'm also doing just like coat hooks and bottle openers and just all sort of stuff mm. and um I just got commissioned by a friend to make them a, a splitting fro, so I'm excited about doing that. And I've really wanted to yeah. make knives, you know, and all sort of stuff. And um, I think the holdup yeah. right now is having a proper grinder where I can set bevels mm. properly and do all of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, blacksmithing is just a yeah. whole another awesome yeah. thing to get into. A whole rabbit hole to go down. Isn't oh, it? yeah. There's <laughs> so, so much more to got, it. Maybe. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, what, I, I'm a very basic blacksmith. I, I just, of necessity, you know, right. making mm -hmm. the most basic tools. You know, I, I've made a few knives, you know, made loads of hooks. I, the thing I've made most, actually, in my life as a blacksmith is S-hooks because I, mm. the workshops I do with kids, half-hour workshops at fairs and festivals. So two kids every half hour making an S-hook. Hmm. and do that all day okay. sometimes i'll make like <laughs> 40 s hooks in a day a long wow. day you know? and i've been doing that for years so s hooks hmm. is probably the thing i've made most yeah you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's fine for your yeah. um for your turning hooks what do you use as a grinder because when i when i learned from robin he taught us to use a angle grinder with abrasive disc on it um as kind yeah. of the easiest way to put your bevels on what do you use in your, in your I've got, setup? I've got two things in my shop. Uh, because we're solar and we've only got a, a limited amount, in the winter, I've got the backup of a foot-powered uh, treadle hmm. grinder. It's a horizontal wheel. Hmm. It's the same mechanism as the forge I've just built. It's by the same company nice. uh, oh. down south in this country. So you press on the pedal and the horizontal round wheel goes round and round. So I can I can do all my grinding on that. It's really hard work, but it mm. means that on the days when there's no sun uh, and I need the power for other things, then uh, I can grind on that. And that's that's what I use in workshops when we go down to the bowl gathering and we have Northern Bowl and Bodger's Bowl. I take those and I set those up in a field under a tarp. The people make their tools on those uh, with chainsaw files and mm -hmm. those grinding stones so that's one way <laughs> and the other way when i've got electricity and a lot of tools to make for other people is just a sorby grinder with all of its uh yeah all of its grinding belts would you yeah, would you recommend one of those maddie because i've been really looking at those the yeah. robert sorby one and uh, i know yoav uses yeah. it and um yeah nick westerman uses yeah. it a lot I as well yeah, Nick Westerman. I think um, Nick Westerman's got a, a setup for grinding because there are limitations with it. The, um, the platen plate, the, the flat plate, is is in line with the belt. So Nick Westerman, uh, he uh, changed his so that the platen sticks out a little bit mm. um, so that you can grind uh, hook tools and so that they don't interfere with the body of the grinder. So. Right. That might be something to look into. But, sure. you know, I may do just fine on the unchanged version of the sorbing. Yeah, That's it's great. Right. It's a bit fast. Uh, so I bought something off eBay to, it's like a variable resistor thing in a box. 
so that you can change the speed oh, by good. just changing the voltage that's given to the motor. Oh, right. It's yeah. a bit rudimentary and probably not that good for the motor long term, but yeah. Yeah, it just slows the speed down sometimes because it's a bit fast. Right. So, but yeah, that's a good tool. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, it seriously moves metal. Yeah. Yeah. And so going back to the company. Than the, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say it's a lot easier than the foot grinder. <laughs> oh, right. So speaking of the foot but grinder, the power, power tools in there, yeah. is the company um, you were talking about earlier, are they still producing the grinders and the, <laughs> and the forge? No, no. When I fell in love with the forge unit uh, 15 years ago, the woman that was the blacksmith, Kate the blacksmith, she was called, she said hmm. she'd been to the company. They were still around then. Uh, Hayden is the name of the company uh and she said look i really like to start making these forges again do you have the cast forms and i said oh no we got rid of those 10 15 years ago nobody's bought one of these things so they just put them in a skip and sent them off to scrap so no they haven't they haven't been made since the 80s that's sad what a shame yeah it is yeah hence my excitement when one came up after 15 years of searching yeah they make a lot of (laughs) sense for outdoor setups like where we do our little festival annually there is electricity nearby but Mm. then you have to run a long extension cord and stuff like that but having something that you know foot powered would make sense yeah 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 and just a little little bag of charcoal like a bag of charcoal lasts me all day you know six Mm. six eight kilo bag of charcoal just which is a lot nicer for people to work around on the the coal and coke if it's outdoors or under tarps. So, yeah, yeah. 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 So there we go. That's pretty pretty good chat. I've enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah, we're getting on. Um, I think it's a good time to wrap it up. Um, It's been awesome talking. I know we can keep going and going. Um, But I I do have one last question. (laughs) And... um, I just want to ask you, and we're going to ask all of our guests, what does Sloyd mean to you? What does Sloyd mean to me? Sloyd is kind of one of those words that uh, I see about, and it's hashtagged all the time. But I don't know, actually, if it means much to me. I've I've, I've obviously read the word and heard people talk about it. But uh, I suppose if I was pushed, I'd say it was common sense in craft. That would be what it means to me, <laughs> whether that's actually what it means, I don't know. But it just seems an approach that is intuitive, mm-hmm. that comes from the tools and comes from the materials, mm-hmm. I suppose. I, I think that's what people are trying to encapsulate when they're using that word. That's what it seems to me. Mm. Does that answer the question? Absolutely. Apparently. I love that. Yeah. Well, Mike, do you have any other? No, no. I just want to thank you for your time, Matty. We really appreciate you um, taking the time out of your day to do this with us. And uh, we look forward to doing, you know, more stuff with other makers and hearing from you in the future. No, it's totally fine. I was very, very nervous that you (laughs) bothered to ask me. And I was very nervous about uh, chatting, but I've thoroughly enjoyed chewing the fat with you guys. Absolutely. Great. Um, if folks want to reach out and follow your work, what is the best way to for folks to keep up with you? Uh, Instagram's the only uh, internet thing I do really. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's Matt, Matty dot Whitaker. Awesome. Double T and both. Yeah. We'll, we'll so throw that, that on me. the on the show notes for everybody to check you out. If you haven't heard of Matty, please 
see his work. It's gorgeous work. Um, yeah, it's been Thank great you. chatting with That's you. Thank much. you. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we'll get you back on sometime. We'll find something else to talk about. <laughs> yeah. We've only just scratched the surface, really, haven't we? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we could... Uh, I feel like we could geek out together quite quite easily there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> going, going to some pretty technical places. Yeah. yeah. Nice. And I, ho I hope we can. I hope we can in the future, you know, just get more technical, especially for, for the advanced mm. listeners that have, you know, been on this journey for a while now to just get a different perspective. Yeah. Well, you know where I am. So, yeah. All right. Awesome. All righty. Well, Keep up the good work and uh, take care of yourself. Have a good night. Yeah, okay. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Thanks cheers. Bye now. Bye now. Bye-bye.